morning, everybody. Open up your Bibles to Genesis 29. If you're using the Pew Bible this morning, we're going to be on page 24. And as always, uh, this text is way richer than we're going to have time to cover. So if you have questions about anything that comes up or that I miss, you can go to slido.com and type in RevCDA in the box and, and ask a question. Um, while we're turning there, I have a couple announcements that I didn't, I didn't share with Brian. Um, the first one is uh, we are, we're running pretty tight in children's ministry right now. So uh, we're kind of low on teachers and helpers. Uh, so if you're interested in volunteering with the kids, we would, you should talk to Joanna about that. She would love to get you involved. But practically speaking, we're going to have to shut down the older kids' class next week due to some scheduling issues, uh, which means the 7 to 11-year-olds will be in here with us. So your parents are welcome to read through the end of this chapter and through chapter 30 and decide how to shepherd your children through that text. Uh, <laughs> Uh, the second announcement I have is that Lent begins on the 22nd of February. That's a couple Wednesdays from now. Um, if you are unfamiliar with the season of Lent, we're not real rigid as far as the church calendar goes, but we try to uh, dip into the tradition, uh, traditions of the church here and there. And Lent is traditionally the 40 days leading up to the Feast of Easter when we celebrate the resurrection of Christ. It's a period of fasting, um, and it kind of ties in with Jesus wandering in the wilderness, uh, and it's meant to prepare our hearts for the joy of the resurrection. Uh, in the Eastern Church, Lent is sometimes called the bright sadness uh, because it's meant to tune our hearts to the suffering of Christ for our sins and both the pain and the discomfort that that should bring up in us, but also the joy of uh, the fact that we are well-loved by God. Um, Lent is, is a celebration that was cobbled together over the first couple centuries of the history of the church, and it was put together for basically three things. One, one reason was it was used to prepare new Christians for baptism on Easter. Oftentimes, Christians would, would get baptized on the Easter holiday, and for 40 days before that, Lent was a preparation for them to enter into the waters of baptism. Uh, additionally, it was used to restore Christians who had fallen away from their faith. In the early centuries of the church, you could be killed for confessing Jesus, and many Christians succumbed to the temptation to worship Caesar so that they could protect their lives. And so the church used the Lenten season to reincorporate fallen Christians into the church. And then thirdly, it was a way for the whole church to practice repentance and re-engage our hearts with our faith prior to the feast of the resurrection. And I would, I would suggest that all of us from time to time kind of get a little lost. And Lent is a good opportunity to kind of refocus and reshape our hearts towards Jesus before Easter. Um, so how do we do that? We're going to be, we're gonna have, be having some readings and some different things through the six Sundays of Lent. But one of the ways the church has historically practiced Lent is through fasting. Um, we recently fasted through Advent. If you were here for Advent, we took the four weeks before the Christmas feast as a season of fasting and preparation to celebrate the birth of Christ. And it's very similar with the Lenten season for six weeks before Easter. And I want to just give you all a couple options um, for how you might consider participating in this season. 
Um, firstly, you can decide to fast from something that has a hold over your life. Um, nobody really can knows what that is except you or maybe someone who's close to you. Maybe it's a food. Maybe it's a device that you have. Maybe it's a social media app. Maybe it's video games or another hobby. Uh, something that you recognize has a pull on your heart. That It might not be an evil thing, but it's just something that, that spends a lot of time directing your thoughts and your actions. Um, you could choose to give that up for Lent. To say from February 22nd on Ash Wednesday through Easter, I'm just not going to participate in that thing as a way of giving that part of my heart back to the Lord. So that's an option. Um, you could commit to fasting on Wednesdays and Fridays. This is what we did for Advent, and this is something that the early church often did, is Wednesday and Friday, they didn't eat until dinner. And I encouraged a lot of you over the Advent season to participate in the fast that way. So that would be twice a week, beginning on the 22nd, just don't eat until dinner on Wednesdays and Fridays. Again, that's an opportunity. I, I heard from many of you over Advent that it was an opportunity to recognize how much of a hold food has on our lives. We're just people that eat because we have so much food. And to say, I'm not going to eat right now opens up um, doors to our hearts that show us anger and bitterness and, 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 and other sinful tendencies that we wouldn't see otherwise because we hide it with food. I heard from some of you over Advent that that kind of fast was too easy. Uh, that's not really the point. Uh, but... <laughs> If you need some, like, varsity fasting, um, one traditional Lenten practice is that at the very beginning of the fast on Ash Wednesday, um, you can participate in a full fast from Wednesday to Friday. Uh, so this is another option. If you're interested on the 22nd, uh, fast for three days. Just have a water fast. Um, that's, a, that's a major fast. You might want to talk to your doctor about that. Um, I'm not a medical ex expert, and I don't know if that would be safe for you. I think it's probably safe for most people. Um, but that's another option for a way to engage in the, the discipline of fasting um, in the Lenten season. So uh, if all that sounds strange, if all that's new to you, we're not going to get into it a lot more today. I'll be talking a little bit more about fasting as we go. But fasting is a spiritual discipline that we are expected as followers of Jesus to participate in. Um, and I think the way that we are invited to do that is flexible. Um, but historically, the church has seen Lent as a good time to do it. So I would invite us all to think through and prayerfully consider how God would be inviting us into best practice in the Lenten season. And I'll talk about it some more as we go and as we get closer to Ash Wednesday on the 22nd. So those are my other announcements. Uh, so let's pray, and we'll get into the text today. Lord God, we are... Um, just in a variety of places this morning. God, I just, I just know uh, that some of us are super excited to be here, super glad to gather with your people, super encouraged by the songs we sang. Some of us are in a lot of pain right now, emotional, maybe physical, spiritual pain. It was hard to get out of bed. It was hard to get to church. Maybe it was hard to get the kids going. Um, we all gather as a people, but we all have different needs. We're all struggling with different sins. We're all, we all are wrestling with different doubts and anxieties and worries and fears. And God, I just pray that you would speak to us by the power of your Holy Spirit, that you would work in this room this morning by your powerful word. 
um, that the words that I have for us this morning would be your words, and if any of them aren't, that they would be forgotten. That you would just do a work, you'd shape us just a little bit more into the image of your son. In Jesus' name, amen. When I was a junior in, no, I was a sophomore in high school, I was taking chemistry. And uh, I was homeschooled, and we were just getting to that point in my education where uh, my mom didn't feel super confident with the subject matter. And so she and some other families that were, we were homeschooling together, we got this chemistry curriculum on VHS, and it was awful. And uh, we had to sit through these videos, and this guy was boring as all get out, and we just, as a group of my friends, my peers, we just hated it. And I really like science generally, and I, but I just hated this chemistry um, curriculum. And so we just kind of drug our feet through the process. I wasn't engaged in it. And, and over the course of this, the, the year, uh, we, we were just trying to get it over with. And uh, I was taking, I was given an exam to take about three quarters of the way through the year. And I had a, I had a writing desk in my bedroom that I did my schoolwork at. And I had my exam on my writing desk, and unbeknownst to my mother, I had smuggled the answer key into the drawer of my writing desk, and I had it cracked open a couple inches so I could, like, do a little cheating, you know? Because I didn't, I didn't want to get a bad grade in chemistry because I, I needed to get a good grade, but I also hated the class and didn't pay attention, and everything was going excellently until my mom just burst into my bedroom, unannounced, and I said, hi, and I slammed the drawer shut real quick. For some reason, that tipped her off to some shenanigans, and she found out that I was cheating, and my parents were really upset with me. Like, I got several lectures about honesty, one for my dad, I just, I remember very vividly, um, and then I had to write a 10,000-word essay on why cheating was bad. And I know what you're thinking. You're thinking, man, I thought your parents are supposed to love you. Why were they so bad to you? Why were they so mean to you, right? Like that's, why would they do that to you? Is that what you're thinking? No, that's not what you're thinking. You're thinking you probably should have been worse. Because see, we all recognize that Parents discipline their children, right? We, those of us who are parents, know that you can't just let your kids do whatever they want or it will turn out badly. And it seems as though God feels the same way about his children. In Amos 3, we read, I have known only you out of all the clans of the earth, God says. Therefore, I will punish you for all your iniquities. He says, because you are mine... I am going to discipline you. The author of Hebrews in Hebrews chapter 12 says something similar. He says, have you forgotten the exhortation that addresses you as sons? My son, do not take the Lord's discipline lightly or lose heart when you have, are reproved by him. For the Lord disciplines the one he loves and punishes every son he receives. There's this sense that if we are 
children of God and we are disobedient, if we stray, then God is going to correct us. He's going to discipline us. He's going to put circumstances in our lives that teach us to not do that anymore. I didn't cheat on any chemistry tests after that. As we read the story of Jacob, the the patriarch, the father of the people of Israel, we recognize pretty quickly that he is not a godly man. We've talked about it for several weeks. He's, He's on his way to becoming one, but he's not there yet. And he is going to be disciplined by God because God wants to change his character. God wants to make him a different kind of person. Discipline is a thing that we don't like. We don't like that word. But discipline comes from the same word as disciple, right? We, we want to be disciples of Jesus. We want to be learners. We want to be taught by God. But we are disciplined as a way to learn, as an opportunity to make better choices. And so we're going to start learning about the discipline of God towards Jacob this morning. First, we get a little glimpse into Jacob's character at the beginning of chapter 29. We read, Jacob resumed his journey and went to the eastern country. He looked and saw a well in the field. Three flocks of sheep were lying there beside it because the sheep were watered from this well. But a large stone covered the opening of the well. And the shepherds would roll the stone from the opening of the well and water the sheep when all the flocks were gathered there. And then they would return the stone to its place over the well's opening. Jacob asked the men of the well, my brothers, where are you from? We're from Haran, they answered which is where Jacob is going, right? Do you know Laban, Nahor's grandson? Jacob asked them. They answered, we know him. Is he well? Jacob asked. Yes, they said. And here is his daughter, Rachel, coming with the sheep. Then Jacob said, look, it's still broad daylight. It's not time for the animals to be gathered. Water the flock and then go out and let them graze. But they replied, we can't until all the flocks have been gathered and the stone is rolled from the well's opening. Then we will water the sheep. While he was still speaking with them, Rachel came with her father's sheep, for she was a shepherdess. As soon as Jacob saw his uncle Laban's daughter Rachel with the sheep, he went up and rolled the stone from the opening and watered his uncle Laban's sheep. Then Jacob kissed Rachel and wept loudly. He told Rachel that he was her father's relative, Rebekah's son, and she ran and told her father. So last week, if you remember, Jacob has just come off of this experience with God. This like mountaintop of like he had this this dream, this vision. God is with him. God makes these promises to him. And he gets up from that place and he continues his journey and he gets to this well. And you just can kind of tell that Jacob is a little proud, can't you? He comes to this foreign country. He surveys the scene and he presumes to tell these shepherds how to run their business. I don't know the details, I don't know you, I don't know the history, I don't know the people involved, but I can tell you're doing it wrong. (laughs) Anybody know anyone like that? What's motivating this pride? If we follow the flow of the story, I think it's this encounter with God, right? He's, He's been empowered by these amazing spiritual realities that he's seen, and now he's gonna go out and he's gonna fulfill his destiny because God has made promises to him. I wonder if you've ever had an experience or, or read a book or went to a conference and, and now I've got it all figured out and I'm gonna come back and tell everybody what I know. When I was 27, I had just gotten a job as the sound guy at the Croc Center. 
The Croc Church had just opened um, in 2009. It was this brand new community of Jesus people, and I was running sound on Sundays for them. And I uh, met with a friend of mine named Victor. He's actually one of our provisional elders. Some of you know Victor. But he was, he's been my friend for a long time. And Victor, if you know him, he has a... Um, he's got a phrase for everything. Like if you've got a problem, he's got like an alliteration for how to solve it. Uh, And it doesn't matter what it is. And so we had this conversation about the church. And I don't remember what he told me, but he gave me three words that a healthy church needs. It it was like the Bible and community and service or something like that. But all all the words started with the same letter. And he just pumped me up with this idea that these are the three things that a healthy church needs. And I was excited about it. And so we had this like hour-long conversation. And then I set up a meeting with the ministry director at the Croc Center. And I went into his office as, you know, a 27-year-old kid who was just running sound at church. And, and I said, okay, here's the deal, Derek. There are three things that a healthy church needs. And I just rattled off the three things that I had been told like two days earlier. And he was so gracious. He smiled at me and he nodded. And he said, you know, you're not the first person that's come into my office to tell me how this new church needs to function. The, per, the last couple that was here gave me this CD of uh, the, the Gaither vocal band that we should be singing on Sundays. And, and I just, I recognized that like he was getting bombarded with people who thought they knew what they were talking about. And I was one of them. And I didn't have any clue what I was talking about. And I had no right to speak into that situation. And now that now that I am in a similar role here at this church, I have, I have meetings like that all the time. Somebody attends our community, our gatherings, uh, you know, once or twice, and then we go out to coffee, and it's, it's always a weird kind of job interview kind of situation, which is fine. But at some point, oftentimes, somebody gets to the like, okay, now that I've told you how great this place is and how I love your church, here's my list of eight things that you're doing wrong and that you need to change. And the thing is, like, They might be right, but who are they? Who are you? Like, what gives you the right to just step into this and just start making pronouncements? I was really blessed last week. We we just finished up a membership class, and um, there were... a handful of people in the class learning about how our church works and and what we believe and how we want to be in the community. And and one of the people in the class uh, was just very brave and offered some some feedback about our our church community. And and it was uh, feedback that that was, um, it was really helpful. And they said that, that, you know, they've been a part of our, our church and they've been plugging in as they can for about eight months. And they've recognized that most of the people in our church are really warm and friendly as long as you pursue them. <laughs> that, that it's really hard to make relationships sometimes in our church community because they seem to be doing all the work as, as, as new people of, of breaking their way in. And, and that's, that's a function of, of who I am, honestly. Like, uh, oftentimes, churches kind of 
become who their leaders are, right? And, and I'm a very quiet, introverted person, and I think I'm a nice enough guy, but I really don't want to get to meet you. I'm sorry. I, it's, so, it's so energy draining to go out and shake hands and, and work the room, and, and, and I recognize that I have to. It's my job, and it's, it's, it's my calling as, 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 a, as a pastor, and it also reflects the heart of God for people, right? That God is a generous and hospitable God, and so, so I, I step out of my comfort zone. But, but for a lot of us, if we don't feel the need to step out of our comfort zones, we, we come across as people who are kind and warm as long as somebody else takes the initiative to get to know us. And I was super grateful to hear that because it's true and I need to be reminded that that's an area that our church needs to grow in. But that person had earned the right to speak that into our community because they had been invested for the last eight months learning and growing and and, and becoming known. But that's not what we see in Jacob here. Jacob shows up at this well and tells these shepherds that they're doing it wrong. And he might be right, but who knows? But he's definitely proud. He's also self-assured. Look at verse 13. When Laban heard the news about his sister's son Jacob, he ran to meet him and he hugged him and he kissed him and then he took him to his house and Jacob told him all that had happened. And Laban said to him, yes, you are my own flesh and blood. After Jacob had stayed with him a month, Laban said to him, just because you're my relative, should you work for me for nothing? Tell me what your wages should be. Now, Laban had two daughters. The older was named Leah and the younger was named Rachel. And Leah had tender eyes, but Rachel was shapely and beautiful. And Jacob loved Rachel, so he answered Laban, I'll work for you for seven years for your younger daughter, Rachel. Laban replied, better that I give her to you than to some other man. Stay with me. So Jacob worked seven years for Rachel, and they seemed like only a few days to him because of his love for her. Jacob shows up at Laban's house, and he tells Laban everything. And I think we're meant to understand that he he shares the story about how he stole his brother's birthright, and he uh, manipulated his family to get his blessing, and that he's fleeing from his brother who's trying to kill him. And Laban replies, you are my own flesh and blood, which is a little bit of foreshadowing for what's going to happen next. Jacob is the same kind of person that Laban is. And I think the text here is inviting us to compare this event of Jacob finding a wife with a similar event in chapter 24 when Abraham's servant goes to the same place to find a wife for his son Isaac. Abraham's servant meets Rebekah at the well and he prays to Yahweh for success. We talked a little bit about how his methods are a little weird, but he he trusts God and he says, God, please show me what I should do. And he he goes to Laban's family this generation earlier and he shares his mission about how he's been commissioned by his master and how he sought the Lord to bless him. He gives Rebekah a bunch of gifts to pay the bride price. We see a couple things different here. First of all, Laban realizes that Jacob doesn't have any money. And we learned in chapter 24 that that's something Laban really cares about. And so Laban, I think, begins to plot and to scheme, to take advantage. What do you want me to pay you? 
the uh, famous theologian Admiral Akbar. It's a trap. Then we also see another thing. We also see that whereas Abraham's servant with this same mission sought the Lord for blessing, for guidance, Jacob doesn't seek God at all. Jacob has had this amazing experience meeting God with the staircase going up and down with the angels and all that in the last chapter. He's had this revelation of who God is and he's heard the promises of God towards his life, but he doesn't ask God's opinion about any of this. Rachel is beautiful and he wants her. That's the whole thought process. That seems pretty normal, but it's not very wise. We read that Leah has tender eyes. Some of your Bibles might say weak eyes. It's kind of a weird Hebrew word, but most likely it's a compliment that Leah's got nice eyes. Bill Arnold says, in other words, Leah was attractive enough in her own way, but Rachel was stunning. Jacob has a thing for Rachel. She's a beautiful woman, and he wants her. Over the course of the last month, maybe their relationship is a little deeper than that, but probably not much. But he doesn't ask for the Lord's wisdom at all. And he says, I'll work for your daughter for seven years. John Walton says, in texts from Nuzi, which is another uh, Canaanite city, the typical bride price was 30 to 40 shekels. Since a shepherd's annual wage was 10 shekels a year, Jacob is in effect paying a premium by working seven years. Jacob throws out a number to pay for Rachel that is way more than is typically required. That might be because he's just so in love. It might be because he's acting foolishly. Could be both. But either way, Jacob doesn't invite God into the process like his grandfather's servant did. And he unwittingly opens up the door for his uncle to abuse their relationship. This is what I want, and this is the plan that I will orchestrate to get it. 2 Corinthians 5, 7, Paul says, For we walk by faith and not by sight. Faith doesn't mean we ignore what we see, but it does mean we take what we see to the Lord. Richard Bennett, in his book on faith, says, God purposes that each of his children be strong in faith, which which presupposes a close, together relationship between the child of God and his heavenly Father. A person of great faith has a deep relationship with God. And a lot of times, I think we want to say that we are walking by faith when we don't really have a depth of relationship with God. We don't pray. We're not in the word consistently. And if that's you, that's like, that is a recipe for weak faith. Real faith requires daily connection to Christ. C.S. Lewis says, if what, you, if what you call your faith in Christ does not involve taking the slightest notice of what he says, then it is not faith at all, not faith or trust in him, but only intellectual acceptance of some theory about him. And I would add maybe an incorrect theory about him. I find this in my life in the realm of covetousness. I I frequently get into a place where like, I I don't like my standard of living. I like someone else's better. 
and they've got, they've got more money or nicer things or a better job or an easier whatever, fill in the blank. And I don't like that. And over the course of my life, what that has done in, in various circumstances is it has led me to buy things and pursue things with debt in unhealthy ways. I'll just put that on the credit card because you know what? I deserve one. And the way I would rationalize this is like, well, I'm walking by faith because you know what? No matter what happens, God's going to take care of me, right? That's faith, right? And that's what Jacob's doing. God already promised, I'm going to take care of you. I'm going I'm to bring you back to your land. Wherever you go, I will go with you. But that doesn't exempt Jacob from doing stupid things and having to bear the consequences of those stupid things. Real faith requires submission to the will of God, which requires knowing the will of God, which requires listening to God. And if we're going to be people who just say we're walking by faith because we just assume it's all going to work out in the end and we're going to do our own thing anyway, then we're not really walking by faith. We're not really seeking God at all. We just want what we want and we hope that God cleans up our mess for us. So Jacob's pride and his lack of real trust in Yahweh here is going to create the perfect set of circumstances for God to begin disciplining him and changing his character. We continue to read in verse 21, and Jacob said to Laban, since my time is complete, give me my wife so that I can sleep with her. So Laban invited all the men of the place and sponsored a feast. And that evening, Laban took his daughter Leah and gave her to Jacob and he slept with her. Laban gave his slave girl Zilpah to his daughter Leah as her slave. When morning came, there was Leah. So he said to Laban, what have you done to me? Wasn't it for Rachel that I worked for you? Why have you deceived me? And Laban answered, it is not the custom in our country to give the younger daughter in marriage before the firstborn. Complete this week of wedding celebration and we will give you also this younger one in return for working yet another seven years for me. This is one of the wildest stories in the Bible, I think. I just, you know, you're, I think as a, as a good reader, especially of narrative, one of the, one of the ways that um, uh, disciples of Jesus over the years have encouraged people to study is to put yourself in the text. Imagine yourself as a character in the text and kind of play out the, the emotions and, and what's going on and like... You just dip your toe into this story and it gets weird, doesn't it? Jacob has spent seven years working as a shepherd for his uncle. And he says, it's time for me to be paid. It's time for me to take my wife. And so a traditional Near Eastern wedding ceremony lasts a week. It's a whole big, long celebration. And the end of the first day, the first night, is when the marriage is consummated. And so under these circumstances, the day has been long. There's been a lot of partying. There's been a lot of dancing. There's been a lot of drinking. It's dark. And Jacob goes to bed with the wrong woman. And the irony is, this is the one who has been the deceiver in our story all along. He is the one who is deceived. 
And I just, I have questions. Like how, how much were Leah and Rachel in on this? Right? Are they all scheming together? Or are they being forced by Laban to do this? Do they, do they, do, does Rachel love Jacob at all? Why doesn't she warn him? We don't know. But the parallels in this story to things that have happened earlier are really interesting. Jacob stole Esau's birthright by appealing to his lust for food. Right? I, I'm so hungry, I'm going to die. Give me some of that stew. And Jacob was more than happy to give him satisfaction for his desire in exchange for the birthright. Hebrews 12, 16 says, make sure that there isn't any immoral or irreverent person like Esau who sold his birthright in exchange for a single meal. And the author of Hebrews, he connects Esau's raging hunger, give me some of that stew or I'm going to die, with sexual immorality. The word immorality in Hebrews is um, the word we would use for lust. Being a little more discerning would have gone a long way for Jacob, but he succumbs to the same basic physical impulses that his brother did. This whole thing, if we step back from it, is, is a case of sexual sin. Jacob is a victim of deception. He is effectively assaulted. But Leah also might be a victim if she's being coerced by her father to do something that she doesn't want to do. We don't know. The thing is, is sexual sin often seems like a good idea. We often get deceived into thinking we're doing the right thing by lust. Many of us have in the past or currently struggle with pornography. When does it seem the most attractive? Usually at night. Maybe when you've had too much to drink. Maybe you've said, you know, I've worked hard. I deserve this. Maybe I, I read an article that said this is actually the good and right thing for me to do. It's deception. Maybe you're here this morning and you're in a sexual relationship with someone you're not married to. Maybe you have participated in, in modern hookup culture. And it's easy to come up with reasons why this is a good idea, why this is a right thing, but it's all deception. Jacob is deceived. He thinks he's doing the right thing. He thinks he's walking in integrity, but he's wrong. Maybe for you it's not sexual lust, but maybe it's food or drink or some other desire. But either way, sin is a deceiver. Jacob doesn't even realize what's happening to him until the morning. Jacob stole Esau's blessing by dressing up like and impersonating his brother and taking advantage of his father's blindness. And Jacob is deceived when his soon-to-be sister-in-law dresses up like and impersonates her sister in the dark. All of these things that Jacob has done come back on him. Verse, 29, or verse 25 says, when morning came, there was Leah. Imagine the shock and the surprise in Jacob's mind. So he said to Laban, what have you done to me? Wasn't it for Rachel that I worked for you? Why have you deceived me? 
the phrase, what have you done? This is what God says to Eve in Genesis chapter 3. It's what Pharaoh says to Abraham in Genesis chapter 12. And it's what Abimelech says to Isaac in Genesis chapter 26. What have you done? And then Laban answers Jacob's question, why have you deceived me? He answers as, and he lies, but he also rebukes Jacob. Laban answered, it is not the custom of our country to give the younger daughter in marriage before the firstborn. Why is this a lie? Well, why didn't it come up sooner? Why didn't it come up when Jacob proposed marriage seven years ago? Jacob has lived in this country for seven years and he's never heard of this custom? Surely everyone in the community that has been invited to Jacob and Rachel's wedding celebration didn't seem like they were put off by the fact that the younger daughter was being married before the first. It's just not come up because Laban is lying. But why is it a rebuke? See, in, the, in English, our Bibles add some words to this statement, but in the Hebrew, it just says, it is not done to set the younger before the firstborn. It is not done to set the younger before the firstborn. You can almost see Laban saying this with a smirk as he rebukes Jacob for the way he has lived his entire life up to this point. Everything about Jacob's scheming and manipulating is putting himself, the younger brother, before his older brother, the firstborn. And Laban says, that's just not how it's done around here. And so we see that Laban is this master schemer, and he manipulates and he deceives Jacob, and then he chides him for being just like him. Jacob is just beginning to learn some powerful lessons that will continue for 20 years before he finally surrenders to God completely. The way he has chosen to live his life has started to reap fruit that he doesn't like. The Apostle Paul in Galatians 6 says, Don't be deceived. God is not mocked. For whatever a person sows, he will also reap. Now, it's tempting to read this verse and tie it to, to something like karma, right? The idea that what goes around comes around. And many world religions have this sort of conception of this um, universal justice. But this isn't how Paul understands this. He, he, he doesn't say that we're at the mercy of cosmic forces that will punish us for wrong and reward us for right. He says that God is responsible for allowing us to reap what we sow. He also says in Galatians 6, the one who sows to the flesh will reap destruction from the flesh, but the one who sows to the Spirit will reap eternal life from the Spirit. See, the Spirit of God is involved in this process. There is a personal being in charge of the experiences of our lives. And this is both terrifying and beautiful. It's terrifying because nothing gets past him. If you're a Christian here this morning, you will be disciplined when you stray, because God loves you, because he wants what's best for you, because he wants you to be conformed to the image of Christ. And if you're here this morning and you're not a Christian, if you're, if you're just kind of trying to figure out this church thing or this Jesus thing, and, and you're not really sure about it, God loves you too. But if you refuse to put your trust in Christ, you will be judged as his enemy for rejecting him, and you will reap destruction 
That's the terrifying thing about this. But the beautiful thing is that because we are not subject to some impersonal force of the universe, but to a personal being, we, we know that this personal being is good. We know that this God is love. And this is the problem with karma. In the, in the Hindu system, uh, historically, Karma was understood as a part of the process of reincarnation. And if you did some terrible thing in a certain life and you died, you would be reincarnated into a lower class. And if you were unfortunate enough to have been reincarnated into the lowest class, it was important for the rest of society to leave you alone and not help you, to let you suffer. Because... You deserved it. And if if I came to your aid and helped you out of the gutter and fed you and clothed you, then I would be getting in the way of the karma. And that system is broken and, and wicked. But we understand that the God who is in charge of reaping and sowing is a good God who loves us. Psalm 103 says, The Lord is compassionate and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in faithful love. He will not always accuse us or be angry forever. He's not dealt with us as our sins deserve or repaid us according to our iniquities. For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his faithful love towards those who fear him. As far as the east is from the west... So far has he removed our transgressions from us. As a father has compassion on his children, so the Lord has compassion on those who fear him. For he knows what we are made of, remembering that we are dust. God has already promised to be faithful to Jacob, and he's going to keep his promises. But he's not going to leave Jacob as the kind of person that he is now. He's going to transform him into a new man for Jacob's good and God's own glory. And it's going to take a while, and it's going to be painful, but God is committed to it because he loves Jacob. We read in verse 28, and Jacob did just that. He finished the week of celebration, and Laban gave him his daughter Rachel as his wife. Laban also gave, or gave also his slave Bilhah to his daughter Rachel as her slave. Jacob slept with Rachel also, and indeed he loved Rachel more than Leah, and he worked for Laban another seven years. So Jacob here really has no choice if he's going to have the wife that he wants. He still isn't really interested in what God thinks. He's not, he doesn't ask God's opinion about this. He just signs another contract for seven years of service. Let's hope that Laban is honest this time. He's got two wives now. We've talked about this before. Every time you get more than one wife, it goes badly for you. And it will. And then they both have these maids, these maids that are given by Laban to his daughters who will actually become Jacob's third and fourth wives in the next chapter. The story is still a mess. But God is at work. We can fast forward in the history of God's people and learn that it is Judah, Leah's fourth son that we'll read about next week, that is chosen to be the head of the family from which the great rescuer who will crush the head of the serpent will be born. Jesus is of the tribe of Judah, of the kings of Israel. 
Even though this whole thing is a mess and God hasn't been consulted in Jacob's desire for what he wants, God is going to orchestrate these circumstances in such a way that his will is ultimately done and that his promise that all the nations of the world will be blessed through you, Jacob, comes to pass. And we could ask the question, how would things be different if Jacob had trusted God? If he had walked by faith from a young age through all the challenges of his life? You could ask that about ourselves. How would my life be different if I had trusted in Christ in greater ways instead of following after my own desires? Even as we most likely all have areas where we went, yeah, like I probably should have sought the Lord there. I didn't. Things didn't turn out well. We can rest in the fact that today is a day that we can trust in Jesus. Today is a day when we can put our focus on Christ and start afresh wherever we've been to start thinking about how God would have us live moving forward. And as we, as we close this morning, I, I do want to be careful to say that it's important the way we apply these truths to our lives. There are absolutely moments, I believe, when God allows and even creates difficult circumstances to discipline and shape us. And many times those circumstances come about because of our own sin and rebellion. And we see this in in Jacob's story. But that doesn't mean that everything bad that happens in your life is what you have reaped from sowing to the flesh. It would be unfortunate to see that as the only lens by which we can grapple with the brokenness in our world. Because sometimes bad things just happen because we live in a broken world, a world that is in large part just filled with sin. And these things that happen to us, they are always an opportunity to grow, and God is never going to waste those things on the process of transforming us into His image But we can't assume that we are necessarily suffering trial because of some sin on our part. This is the whole message of the book of Job, if you've read it. And it's it's the story of a man who has done nothing wrong and yet still suffers. And somewhat unsatisfactorily, that book doesn't really you know, wrap the whole problem of evil and suffering up into a nice little bow. It just kind of leaves it hanging that like, yeah, sometimes that happens. And mysteriously, God is still working in the midst of that. But while I wouldn't want to discourage you from meditating on the fact that you have made decisions outside of the will of God and you have reaped to the flesh the consequences of those decisions, that is likely true for all of us in this room. I wouldn't want you to necessarily imply that apply that framework to every moment of suffering in your life because sometimes suffering is just the work of the enemy, the sinfulness of other people, the brokenness of the world that we live in. And so if you're reflecting on that, asking the question like, well, how do I know if I'm, in a, if I'm in a dark place and if I, if I feel like I'm burdened, if I feel like circumstances are not working out according to the way I would like them to work out, how do I know if God is disciplining me for something I've done or if something is just going wrong? Well, that's when you, you draw near to Christ. You 
develop rhythms and habits of prayer, of the intake of God's word, of deep relationships with brothers and sisters in the church. You continue to walk by actual faith in closeness to Christ. I have been greatly, greatly ministered to over the years by godly men and women who have had the courage to speak truth to me. Either, hey, that thing, that hard thing, like that's not your fault. Or also, hey, that hard thing, you probably deserve that because you did this and over there and you should probably repent for some sin. Sometimes we can't see it ourselves and that's why the, the community of God's people is necessary to help us work it out. Jacob learns something from this interaction, but it's going to take a few more years before he finally figures out what it means to surrender himself to God and to trust. We're not going to see that until chapter 35. Um, But I think the exhortation for all of us today is to reflect on like how are we how are we coming into the decisions of our lives we just have a goal a desire a thing we want and we're just going to hope that god works it out in the end do we actually bring our needs our wants our desires to christ and say is this what you would have for me show me speak to me guide me help me through prayer and, and and the word of god and through the community of god's people discern what wisdom looks like Let's do some questions. Can you imagine being Leah? (laughs) No. Um, (laughs) Married to a man who's bitter and being married to the wrong sister, is this God's punishment or our sin? Both. Yeah, I think Leah is... um, we talk a little bit more about this next week, I think. Um, Leah is kind of a beautiful story. I, I, we can't really be sure how um, complicit she is in the whole thing. I mean, in, in one way, you could assume that she's just as manipulative as her dad, and she's trying to manipulate Jacob too. It could also be the case that she's obligated to listen to her father in, in a culture where um, she has no other options. We don't know. But the beautiful thing about Leah is that God honors her in such stark ways by giving her her son, the the line of the Messiah. Um, There's little hints later on in the story that Jacob's um, view of her changes over the years. But yeah, this is, like I said, this story is messed up. And, and everyone is in a really hard place here. Does repentance stop consequences from happening or p- stop punishment from God? Not necessarily. Um, repentance writes our relationship with God. But sometimes consequences come from other sources. You know, if you rob a bank, you can repent for that sin and be, and be cleansed and, and, and made right with God. But you still might go to jail. That's, that's the way that works. There are, there are stories in, throughout the scriptures where 
where repentance comes too late for a people. Um, and, and the consequences of, of the sins of a nation just kind of steamroll over the nation because of um, generations of sin. That doesn't mean repentance isn't worth it. We should desire to be made right with God and to ultimately find our satisfaction in Him and to stop being um, drawn away by sin. Um, but that doesn't always mean we escape the consequences. I'm scared that I'm a lot like Jacob and don't even see it fully. How can I prove my heart and be sure I'm not leading myself into a hard punishment? Well, I think we're all probably a lot like Jacob, to put you at rest a little bit. Um, and I, I think you're very wise for saying you don't see it fully because that's the whole thing about being deceived, right? Do, how, how will I know if I'm deceived? You won't. This is where drawing close to Christ comes in. And it seems, and I, it seems really silly and trite sometimes to say like, do you have a consistent prayer life? Are you consistently in the word? And not as a like, I need to check the box today, but do you like go, I really want to seek the Lord and hear what he has to say to me? Do you make connections with other brothers and sisters in a deep way and, and share your heart with them and, and confess sin together to other men or women in your life? And not everybody, not the whole church, but are there two or three people that you can come to and say, hey, this is what I'm thinking. This is what I'm feeling. What, what do you see here? Am I, am I going after my flesh? Is this wrong? Tell me the truth. And I firmly believe that these very simple things are the things that Jesus has designed for our good. And they're not magical. They're not spectacular. They're not like having a dream of a tower to heaven kind of stuff. But they're the tools that God has given us to gain wisdom. And that's where I would start if you are feeling anxious about your own heart. And, and just recognize that, that that anxiety is... Um, is potentially because you're deceiving yourself or it, it could be the attack of the enemy. Satan wants us to doubt that God loves us. He wants us to believe that God doesn't care about us. And that's one more reason why we need to be people of prayer and people of the word and people in Christian community. Is it possible that trials can be a sanctifying work to prepare us or align us for his kingdom work in the future? Absolutely. I think that's always what trials are. I think I've said this before, but every time you come up against something, you have a choice to make and God is going to do something in that choice. He is going to give you an opportunity to step into the way of Jesus or the way of the world. And sometimes that's a big thing and sometimes it's a little thing. And God's graciousness and his faithfulness is if you come to that fork in the road and you make the wrong decision, then he just kind of spins you around to do it again because he's not going to give up on you. He's going to turn you into someone who looks like his son. And I think that happens like nobody gets sanctified uh, at the beach or at Disneyland unless something goes wrong. 
Maybe, maybe Disneyland's really sanctifying. I don't know. But the chances are, if you just, if everything is great, you're not growing. It's when things are difficult. It's when things are challenging. It's when things are broken and you have to wrestle with that, that God gives you what you need from the Spirit to be a different person. So I would, well, what James says, rejoice when you suffer various trials because God is doing something in you. He's working in you all the time, even if it's hard, even if it's your fault, like Jacob. God is doing something for your good. We're going to take communion, as we always do. Jacob, in this story, we see that he's got a lot to learn about trusting God, and that faith comes from this relational closeness, which he's going to discover later on. And this is what we are offered from Jesus. He says, take and eat. This is my body. This is my blood. He's not, he's not offering this distant cosmic relationship between God and man. He is inviting us into his very life. He's inviting us to trust him and to draw close. And so as the band comes up and, and, and we sing, we invite you to come up and take the bread and the cup. We've got wine or juice per the dictates of your conscience. Take it back to your seat and ask yourself the question, where in my life am I far from God? Where am I just making decisions because it makes sense or it's what I want? What area of my world am I keeping to myself and my own desires? I would just ask you to invite the Holy Spirit to poke on those things, to shine a light on those places. And when he does, give them back to him this morning. Repent of that sin of selfishness and pride and say, God, I... This belongs to you. Do what you want with it. You're welcome to sit or stand as we sing. You're also welcome to come and pray on the prayer rugs if you want to um, get into a different physical posture as you pray. You've been listening to the Revelation Church Coeur d'Alene podcast. Learn more about Revelation Church at revelationcda.com.